Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. To view the entirety of our service, please visit our Facebook page at The Tabernacle Family or our YouTube channel at The Tabernacle Today. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. You know, uh, some workplaces have those uh, signs up that say it's been 363 days without a workplace accident. I feel like that whenever I watch Liam up there drumming. You know, I believe uh, we're up to about a year and a half now where he hasn't hit somebody with those drumsticks like sometimes happens when a drummer's uh, drumming. So Ronnie's right there in the impact zone. Sometimes I worry about him. I believe that was the very first time uh, Lily uh, has sang up here on the praise team. Good job, Lily. Amen. I'm going to ask her uh, at some point uh, what she saw when she looked out at you guys. Did she see people joyfully worshiping the Lord or the Darlin brothers? Faceless expressions there. It's great to worship the Lord together, isn't it? Thank you, Eddie, for that and the whole team. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34. And I knew there'd be these great missionaries here today, and so I wanted to include a little missionary story uh, along with this beautiful passage today. And I think about uh, the story of a missionary to Papua New Guinea named Don Richardson. And as Don Richardson and his young wife and baby rounded the last bend of the river on their 10-hour canoe journey, he wondered if he had made a mistake because as he got to what would be his home for the next few years as a missionary, He and his wife saw 400 Sawi tribe men waiting, masked up and in full war paint, with weapons in hand. The tribe were among Papua New Guinea's cannibal tribes, and if you don't know the word cannibal, that's those that like to eat human flesh. Uh, And so, not as much as that happens today, although uh, it was so neat, my brother Greg one time was telling me about being at a missionary Bible dedication for a tribe. And there was uh, people that had come over from other islands and things like that. And the one, uh, the, the one fellow that stood up that had received the Bible, he got up and he said, first of all, we want to thank this uh, other tribe from another island because uh, about 100 years ago, they tried to do this. They tried to bring the gospel here and give us a Bible too. And, and we ate them when they came. And so we're sorry for eating your ancestors. And uh, that great moment of reconciliation there and the gospel was going forward. Well... These uh, Sawi tribe warriors were shouting Asa over and over again, and he was hoping, Don Richardson was hoping, it didn't mean let's eat. It didn't. They had heard about how missionaries had brought neighboring tribes medicine and steel tools and nylon fish lines and other things to make their lives better, and they were joyously welcoming their missionaries in their best outfits. It was like Sunday dress, you know, for them. And the Richardson settled in perfectly. They loved the people and the people loved them. They started learning the language like Bob told us about a little bit ago. And they got to the point where they began sharing the gospel with them. And that's where it went off the rails a little bit because when they started talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ and included in the gospel of Jesus Christ the betrayal of Judas, 
the people stopped them and they were hooting and hollering because one of their number one values was treachery. And when they heard about Judas, they said, we found the hero of the story. Because that's what we've always done. We've tricked people from other tribes into coming here and then they've been dinner. And Don Richardson thought, how in the world am I going to reach these people? How in the world am I going to reach these people? Well, then war broke out between the Sawi tribe and a neighboring tribe. And it affected the safety of Don Richardson, his wife, and his baby. And he thought, i got to leave. And I don't know if I'm going to do any good here anyway with what's going on. So he told the chief about that, that he'd have to take his family out of there if peace did not come. Now, would you like to hear what happened next? Oh, good, good. I'll tell you at the end of the message. But first... For those just joining us, I decided after the book of Ecclesiastes message series that you all responded so well to, to, uh, uh, to, to do a, a six-week series before Thanksgiving in just Exodus 34 where God reveals his name to the people of Israel and he gives it to us too uh, by extension. And, and it's so powerful what God says about himself there that he wants us to get into our head and into our hearts. And really it's supposed to mean a lot for Israel going forward, but also anybody who winds up turning to Christ because these things are true of our wonderful God. Folks, when God tells you who he is, believe him. And in the first message we saw that God says, I am merciful and gracious. And his mercy and grace we saw kind of go together like peanut butter and jelly. And those words occurred, the two words there often occur together in the rest of the Old Testament. And the second message, message we saw that because of God's John 3.16 filter, he can be slow to anger toward us. And we mentioned, and it meant a lot to several of you, that it's not that God the Father is angry and God the Son is loving toward us. No, it's that the Father so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus. The Son, God the Son so loved the world that he embraced the ultimate rescue mission, coming and doing what it would take to have sinners' sins forgiven before a holy and righteous God. And God the Spirit so loves the world that he is in the world actively making us think about our need of God, what Christ has done for us, and he's drawing people to understand what Christ has done for them because of the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It all goes together in beauty. Now today we're going to look at one of my favorite words in all of the Bible. It's the great Hebrew word hesed. I probably should put a ka in there. Kased. I don't know. Which the English Standard Version often translates as steadfast love. And in Exodus 34, God gives this great revelation of himself after forgiving the people's wicked sin of the golden calf, where they had crafted a golden calf, an idol to worship, after God had given them the Ten Commandments. So almost immediately after receiving the Ten Commandments, they had totally violated the first three. They had not put God first. They had crafted an idol. And they had taken the Lord's name vainly. They had taken the Lord's name in vain. And oh, how I shudder for us. Because how often do we do that? How often do we not put God first? How often do we make up things of idols? We love them more than our dear God. We actually, in the golden calf incident, they were trying to do a mixture there. They said this idol like Egypt has is now how we're going to think of Yahweh our God. And I think about how many times we wind up taking the Lord in vain. Not just when we curse and take his name as a curse word, which we should never do, but also just how flippantly we speak about him 
and instead of having a, a reverence about us. You know, uh, Brother Bob talked about the uh, fear of when people have ancestor worship and it's and it's and it's it's really terror of what those might do if they're angry at us and for believers we fear God but we're thinking in terms of revering God and those trapped in idol worship don't revere their gods they don't love them they don't speak of the gods loving them they speak about hey bad things are happening we must have done something to tick off the gods what do we have to do to undo it like my dear friend from India uh, W.J. Subash, who talked about how when he was a younger man, he'd go from uh, temple to temple trying to figure out what God had a problem with him so he could appease that God and go forward in life. And it was such glorious news to him when he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ that fear means awe and reverence. He's God and we're not, and we revere him. Well, had it not been for Moses' intercession, I've talked about this the last couple of weeks, God may have destroyed them all right there at the foot of Mount Sinai. But Moses did intercede for Israel. Israel repented and God forgave their sins. And through all this, the people were growing, especially Moses. And then Moses said, my, since we're growing, I want to know more of God. He said to God, God, will you show me your glory? And in Exodus 33, I think it's verse 19, God answered and said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name before you, the Lord. And that's what happens in Exodus 34. So let's again read the first nine verses. Exodus 34, verses 1 through 9. The Lord, whenever it's capitalized like that, it's Yahweh. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. It's just too holy. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hands two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is we are a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. God reveals his nurture. Let's pray. Father, my heart is so full. I'm so thankful for you. I'm so thankful for your grace and your goodness, the truth of your word. Lord, we've been learning about you identifying yourself as merciful and gracious, and we know that your holiness and your righteousness means you have to judge sin. But thank you for your heart to deal with the sinner's sin problem for us. And if we will humble ourselves before you and acknowledge what you've done for us, you do forgive our sins, Lord God. 
forgive us for being rebels against you. We have not believed that you're a good God. We have thought we had a better way. We've been wise in our own eyes and done what we think would bring us a better life. And because of that, we have been far from you. Many in this room, far from you. We have sought our own ways. We've trusted our own judgment rather than the beauty of your words. Lord God, thank you that you've given us the Bible, basic instructions before leaving, our, leaving earth. You, it's the owner's manual for life, and every time we choose to do what your word says rather than what we want to do, it's in our best interest. It'll help us be the best us ever. Lord, help us to believe that, to be thankful for your forgiveness because we have rebelled, and to rely on your mercy and grace and you're being slow to anger and now we look at this great word about your steadfast love your faithful love your mercy your loving kindness lord it's a hard word to translate because it conveys so much help us as we look at it today to just bring it alive in christ's name we pray amen well one of my goals in doing this series is that when it matters when you're really down on yourself when others are down on you and those things for the things we've been teaching in this six-week series to come into your mind and particularly, I want you to have just about memorized verses 6 and 7 through this series. And so help me fill in the blank. Let's see how good you guys are doing so far. Well, the blank's filled in there. But it's not on here, so. <laughs> Moses said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and... What's after merciful? Oh, we've got to try again. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and... Gracious. Let's try again. I know you're better than that. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and? Gracious. Gra hey, there we go. Slow to? Anger. And abounding in steadfast? Love. Okay, we're going to get this. I got three more weeks. Abounding in steadfast love and abounding in faithfulness, it says in the ESV there. But the word from the Hebrew could just as well be translated truth. And I, I think that's probably preferable as we go along keeping steadfast love for thousands. So a second time he wants to impress this word on you that he has this toward you. And then it says he uh, forgives iniquity and transgression and sin who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the sins of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now we looked a little bit about that last part last week and of course we're building back toward it again. But because of God's holiness and his righteousness and justice, he has to be a hundred percent of those things. And so he can't just say any sin is not a big deal. It's a big deal to God. Just as if I did something to uh, my brother Lance, who's on his way back to Charlotte, it would just be two brothers squabbling with each other, right? So if I hit him and he hit me and we got into a little scuffle, they, oh, brothers work that out, you know. But if I went out here and hit our peacekeeping officer out in the foyer, uh, that's a bit of a problem, isn't it? Now, I've done the same thing, but I've done it to somebody higher up. Now, if the governor was coming through Danville and I jumped out of a crowd and went up and punched him, I'm probably looking at some time, right? But if the president was coming through and something like that happened, you may never see me again, you know. And so, uh, as we elevate that up, what does even the most simple of sins mean when we're against a holy God who loves us, has a purpose and plan for our life, and all sin is cosmic treason, it's rebellion against him? He said, this is the way I can bless you, and everything we define as sin in the Bible is us doing that which God can't bless. I've got an owner's manual for my car, right? And it tells me how to use certain things related to the car. I can get sugar and put it in the gas tank. That's not going to help my car, not at all. 
And, um, you know, I have given the illustration before, not here in a while, but let's say that I wanted to play baseball with a badminton racket. I could do that. I could have David throw me the ball, and I would try to hit it there with the badminton racket, and I've done this before, and, and the badminton racket just breaks in two. Now, what I can't do is dial up the designer of the um, badminton racket and say it didn't work. Because somewhere in there, they're going to say, well, how'd you use it? And I would say, well, I tried to hit a baseball with it. And they're like, well, that's not how it was designed to be used. That's on you, buddy. And God's given in his word everything it would take to know the purpose of any area of life. And when we seek his face and apply his word, we're doing that which he can bless. And all sin is that which God cannot bless. It's like misusing his design and intent. And I hope you've got that down because God is a good God. God is, his, before he speaks, he says, this is about my glory, it's about my goodness passing before you, and then he breaks down his name, and it's so good if you get this in your heart and mind. Now, steadfast love is such a key word in this passage in the Bible, it's actually going to take a couple weeks to break it down related because it interlinks with the word truth, and then it's repeated again right before he talks about forgiveness. So on the one hand, God has to judge sin. On the other hand, he wants to express mercy toward us. And as we learned last week, that Christ coming and dealing with our sin makes it possible for God's wrath to be taken care of by Christ so that we can live out this love relationship with the Lord. Now, God will reveal more of himself to those who are growing in their relationship with him. Have you found that to be true? He loves you and his, you know... There are religions out there where it's like the Masons and there's 32 degrees of this religion or that and only the holiest people can go up and you've got to reject marriage and other things to get there. But Christianity is not like that. The moment, it, it, let's say somebody trusts Christ today. If you turn to Christ for salvation today, you will instantly have everything that Billy Graham had to make a difference in the world. You will have the ability to humble yourself, pray and seek God's face. You will have a church, the church, the body of Christ to come alongside you and help you grow. You'll have all your sins forgiven, a, a reset, a mercy grace reset before the Lord. And you'll have a Bible. Somebody will help you get a Bible like the Ambrosius did for those people, like we can do with you here today. The Gideons, many Gideons here today who give out Bibles. And if you get into that word and that word gets into you, you can start living out God's plan and purpose for your life rather than the bad ideas you've had about your life. And that is so wonderful. And as you grow in him, God wants to know you more. Just like a great relationship between a husband and wife and two good friends, the more you grow in that relationship, the more you learn about them. Moses is now, in Exodus 34, he's 30 chapters into relationship with God. And he is growing. And God is revealing more of himself to Moses and the people he leads. And that happens throughout the Bible. In fact, I just want to, for a few minutes, go back and from Genesis in our minds to Exodus 34. Remember, there's about 15 incidences of as people were seeking God and God was dealing with them, all of a sudden you get a new name for God based on that person's experience with God in real time. And he wants to do that with you. In fact, the uh, uh, book of Revelation tells us that Jesus is actually has a new name for every believer that one day he's going to reveal to just you. You know, he saw Simon, the unstable fisherman that was full of himself, and he said, your name is Simon, but I call you Peter. I call you Rock. Jesus saw not what he had been, but he saw what he would become when he gave his life to Christ. And for each of us, that's a true reality. And uh, that, that 
might inspire somebody to just think about that. What might God's name be for me in the future? What do I want it to be? And start moving toward living out that reality. Peter certainly wouldn't have seen himself as a leader of the early church, but that's what God had in mind for him to be. And that growth relationship. Well, in Genesis 1-1, when it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then in uh, further down in the chapter it says, and God created man in his image, male and female, he created them in his image. That's the word Elohim. And it occurs 2,602 times in the Old Testament. It's the basic name for God as we think of God the creator. In Genesis 2, he gets more personal as we get more information about how he created Adam and Eve and had a purpose and plan for them in marriage and in their lives. He gives his name the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. And Yahweh occurs 6,828 times in the Old Testament. It's a big deal, the name Yahweh. And you're familiar that you don't hear Yahweh much, you hear Jehovah more. But do you know the word Jehovah doesn't occur in the Old Testament at all? And I'll tell you why that is in just a minute. Uh, when Jehovah's Witnesses, Lord bless them, they're just ignorant. When they say the only way to say the name of God is Jehovah, there's no such name. That was a name given later for Jews to process not saying Yahweh because it, it, it was the holy name and they just would pause there and later Jews, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. But after Yahweh Elohim called out and made covenant with Abraham, he kept making himself more personal to Abraham. Abraham had, we get to see about 30 chapters of growth for Abraham in the Bible and, uh, and then his sons after him. When Abraham met with Melchizedek in Genesis 14, he came to know God as El Elyon, the Most High God. Uh, and, and what a powerful experience that was for him. And then the chapters unfold after that and you just keep getting new ones. They, he, in chapter 15, for the first time, uh, you hear the name Adonai or Master. We'd say Lord uh, with the L-O-R-D with the lowercase after the L. And that happened in Genesis 15 when God restated to Abraham that he was calling him out. He was going to be a special play people. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And of course, that's still on the table today. All those different things with the Abraham covenant. Adonai occurs 431 times in the Old Testament. Later Jews, to be reverent, to express reverence when they saw Yahweh, took the consonants of Yahweh, Y-H-W-H in English, bringing it over, and they took the vowel, vowel points from Adonai, A-O-I, and they put it in there, Yehovah. And that's where they would come to the name Yahweh and they'd say, Yehovah. And that's why, Lord bless them, our Jehovah's Witnesses friends are just ignorant when they say the only name you should call God by is Jehovah because technically that was just something to help, you know, uh, earlier on. God also appeared to Abraham's Egyptian baby mama back in Genesis 16. Remember Hagar? She'd been driven away. She'd run away. And uh, she had an encounter with Yahweh. And she was weeping there and she just felt so afflicted like so many people under a servitude situation have felt over the centuries. And she said when God dealt with her there so kindly, she said, you are the God who sees. You are El Roe. And another awesome facet of God was developed. The God who sees us in our affliction. Uh, I remember Jesus, you know, coming. And... Uh, Nathaniel said, I think it was Nathaniel, he said, can anything good thing come out of Nazareth, you know? And Jesus looked at him and said, or out of Galilee, I'm butchering it a little bit here, because I'm tired. 
But Jesus said, when you were under the tree, I saw you. And at that, that dear man said, you, are the, you're the, you must be the Messiah. And I wonder what was happening under that tree. And I think under that tree, Nathaniel had said, God, if you're out there, make yourself real. Show it to me somehow. And the God who sees saw him there. And when Jesus came to earth, he had this appointment with Nathaniel. And he responded immediately with worship. Well, in Genesis 21, Abraham came to know God as El Shaddai, God Almighty. And then in Genesis 21, after he resolved a conflict with Abimelech, Abraham did something very interesting. He planted a tamarisk tree. And he called on God as El Elom, the everlasting God. And I don't know how shifting and troublesome your temporary circumstances are. But Abraham said, you know what? During my lifetime, the promised land that's been promised to me is not going to be mine. It's for future descendants after me. So I'm going to plant a tree, and as the tree goes, I'm going to walk by here and realize I'm a stranger and a sojourner in a land that will be my descendants after me. And the tree reminded of that, him that. And the only name that would do in temporary circumstances was saying, you're the everlasting God. You're the God that's always there, never changes. Uh, when our present circumstances are tough and fleeting, you're the God that's always there. He was growing in that relationship with him. And then in Genesis 22, when... God did the unbelievable. He asked God, Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And Isaac said, Dad, where's the sacrifice? Abraham didn't look and say, you're the sacrifice, son, and I'm really upset about all this. He said, God will provide a lamb, my son. And after God did provide a substitute so Isaac wouldn't have to die, of course, what Abraham was only willing to do, God actually did later on in sending his own son Jesus. But Abraham came to know God as Yahweh Jireh, the Lord who provides. The Lord who provides. And then Isaac and Jacob were taught to think of God as the God of their father, Abraham. And then the father, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Jacob was so impressed with the reverence of his father, Isaac, he called God the fear of Isaac, the reverence of Isaac, the one Isaac had revered. And Jacob, looking back later in his life, after there'd been so much struggling in the flesh, so much of him and not enough God in his life, when he was really right with God later on in his life, he called God the God who has been my shepherd all my life long. When Moses met God at the burning bush, you remember that, Exodus 3? What do I, who, who do I tell them that you are God? Tell them I am that I am. I exist totally and completely and fully within myself. Always have, always will. Tell them I am sent you. And one of the most powerful references to Christ's deity in the New Testament is John 8, 24, when Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. We're to believe that Jesus himself is God who came to earth. Moses told Pharaoh, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go. They were owning him as their God. A God for everybody started out with this dear relationship with Israel to model faith to the world. Like those in Israel, we're to grow in that relationship of, uh, with God. And as we do, he reveals more of himself to us, just like he did to Abraham and to Moses. Jacob called God the God of Bethel. And it's our prayer for him to be the God of Danville and the God of Pennsylvania County, and the God of the United States, as he was the God of Bethel. Bethel means house of God. And that brings us back to Exodus 34, because today God tells us that he is the God who is abounding in steadfast love. The word for abounding there is the word rob, which occurs 414 times in the Old Testament. It's often translated much, many, 
great or abounding. Our passage is the first time it's used to describe an attribute of God, but the first time it occurs is actually Genesis 6-5 when God says, this earth is characterized by much wickedness. Much wickedness. Other passages talk about people having much guilt and many sorrows. Look at Psalm 32.10. We're going to put it up here. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but there's our word, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Do you want to be surrounded by God's love? If you believe in him and seek him, that's what he wants you to know he's doing for you. And our passage is the first time it's used to describe an attribute of God, and it's the word kased, hesed, which is steadfast love. How does God want to, us to think about him when we think about his name? as the God who abounds in steadfast love. Can you say that? God's love abounds in steadfast love. Now, let's look more at this word hesed here, since we're doing this series. It occurs 249 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. The English Standard Version that I've been using on these Sunday mornings usually translates it as steadfast love. If you've got another translation, it says something different. The Christian Standard Version, another popular newer translation, almost always says faithful love. The King James, the New King James, all over the place is the translation. They'll say mercy, they'll say loving kindness, they'll say goodness too. And one Jewish scholar, I read a Jewish uh, translation of the scriptures recently, and he used the word grace every time. It's got a lot of all that together in it. It's such a powerful and beautiful word. So, it's often linked with two words especially. One of the words it's linked with often is goodness because if you don't believe God is good and loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, you're going to have a hard time receiving his love, his, let alone it abounding in your life. You've got to get it settled once and forevermore. You know, this is one of the five things I hope anybody ever gets for my ministry, and that is God really is for you. He's not for an unrepentant you because then you just go on increasing the ugliness that's in your life. But when you repent of your sins, when you place your faith and trust in him, he has a good plan for your life, and it will be better than anything you have for yourself. He's God. He knows what you don't know. You don't know what he knows. And yes, it's humbling to trust in him and not lean on your own understanding. But he is abounding in love toward you. But you'll never get in on that if you aren't convinced that he is goodness toward you. And he wants to be all about that for his glory in what he does in your heart and life. The other word it's often linked with is the word that follows it in this passage in Exodus 34. And it's the Hebrew word amet, which in ESV is unfortunately here translated faithfulness, because I think truth is how you ought to have it there. It means both those things, and, but I'm going to show you. Here's how it's linked with goodness. Anybody here like Psalm 23? Surely goodness and mercy, it's the word of said. Surely goodness and God's steadfast love will follow me. That same one Psalm 32 says surrounds us will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How about that word amet or truth? Lamentations 3.23. Anybody like Lamentations 3.23? Great is thy faithfulness, right? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness and truth. 
Jeremiah wrote those words after Jerusalem had been totally decimated and they were going into captivity to Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar had just decimated Jerusalem and its temple. And the high spot of the entire book is right there in Lamentations 3 where he says, you know what, man, we've been whacked because of our sin. Uh, we've been judged because of the, the idolatry we've had and all those different things, but this does not mean God doesn't love us. We've just gotten what our sins deserve, unfortunately. Don't be deceived, you'll reap what you sow. But even in the middle of that, Jeremiah says, you know, the steadfast love, the cassette of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your truth. It will keep on guiding us and guarding us. Think about that when Monday turns ugly. And you're wondering, am I really loved? The song says he's a good, good father. And he is a good, good God. And he wants you to experience his abounding love toward you and the purpose and plan he has for you. Does anyone here, uh, well, Butch quoted it yesterday uh, in, in charging uh, Zachary and Rachel. He quoted Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Is that anybody here's favorite verse? Proverbs 3 is a great chapter. There's some of you out there. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. But just up before that in Proverbs 3, 3, God puts a picture in our mind. And here's what he says. Let not steadfast love and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. You ever seen somebody walk in the room and they got big jewelry hanging out right here? God wants you to think about just right here for all the world to see and for you to know and experience God's love and his truth surrounding you like a necklace that adorns you or maybe more like a Kevlar vest that protects you, right? Uh, a, 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 like a breastplate of righteousness that we read of in the New Testament. Why can you trust in the Lord with all your heart? You can do that because God's steadfast love and his truth are around you like a protective shield. Now I mentioned that said definitely includes the concept of grace and emet definitely includes the idea of truth. Can you think about who perfectly embodied God's kesed and his emet or his truth? Jesus, right? God came to earth and we're told in Genesis, uh, John 1 that we beheld the glory of God. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the one and only Son of the Father, full of or abounding in grace and truth. And some scholars believe that based on the name God gave himself in Exodus 34, that he was now coming to earth to show and demonstrate exactly what grace and truth looked like, what loving kindness and truth and faithfulness looked like. And I joined them. I believe that's true. I think that's supposed to be in our mind there. We already saw that later on in Israel's history, when they'd gotten off track, they would come to him confessing their sin, and they would give just about every one of these names again here from Exodus 34. Lord, we're dead to rights. You've got us. We're sinful. But Lord, we're trusting in your mercy and grace. We know that you're slow to anger. You told us so. You're abounding in steadfast love and truth. You will forgive iniquity for a repentant people. And we're coming to you and asking you to do what you said you would do. Because you told us who you are. And we believe you. The question is, do you believe in this morning? Are you still beating yourself up and not forgiving yourself for something that you have done and it just keeps on coming back over and over again? I hate that language. 
I just can't forgive myself. I hate that language because I like to speak in biblical terms. You know what the Bible never does? It never says that you've sinned against yourself. It says that if you've really sinned, you've sinned against God. And if you'll receive his forgiveness, it's not like playing tennis where you're, you're bouncing it back and forth. It is you're receiving his forgiveness because he's the one you've sinned against. So you can't forgive yourself, but you can receive forgiveness from the one that you have sinned against and who can forgive you. And all of a sudden you have God's peace and purpose again and everything's restored and reset in your life. Amen? Amen. Turn to Psalm 136. This steadfast love word occurs more in the Psalms than anywhere else and in some of the other wisdom literature, the poetry, because it's about worshiping God. It's about getting who he is right. And over and over again, the people were urged to draw their attention away from their fickle selves, prone to wander, Lord, we feel it, and to set them on God and to realize how wonderful he is. And so I'm going to read down through this. And do you notice, look what it says. In every verse it ends with, for his steadfast love endures forever. So you got a job this morning. I'm going to read the first part. You say the second part, right? Let's practice. For his steadfast love endures forever. You can do better. Here we go. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who alone does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and stars to rule over the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it but overthrew Pharaoh and the host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings. And killed mighty kings. Sion, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as a heritage. A heritage to Israel, his servants. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state and rescued us from our foes. He gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven. Amen and amen. 
In all those ways, if salvation is the need, his steadfast love provides it. If protection from an enemy who would do you harm is the need, his steadfast love endures forever. If filling your tummy is the need, thank God that he gives multiple ways for that to happen. His steadfast love endures forever. You know, the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation, translated abounding in kesed with one word, polyelios. Polyelios. Anybody here ever been in an Orthodox church? A Greek Orthodox church? Somewhere along the way, maybe you got a chance to worship in one. You know, they love this word so much, they often sing the polyelios. They sing it every Sunday from September to December and again in January until what they call cheese fair. And yes, I didn't make, not make that cheesy name up. They also sing it on feast days. They sing it a lot. They sing it after reading from the Psalms and before the chanting of the canons. Now, we already saw Jeremiah rejoiced in God's steadfast love, how it never ceases, even though Jerusalem had just been decimated. This is something that goes beyond our circumstances going our way to trusting that he loves us and has a purpose and plan. So we always need to rely on God's steadfast love, but as we move toward our ending here, what special times will God's steadfast love matter to you? It'll matter when you've sinned. Because it's the word in Psalm 51 when David is recounting his sin with Bathsheba and he's begging God to forgive him. Not only the sin with Bathsheba, but being responsible for the death of her husband, Uriah. Oh, King David, say it isn't so. You are a man after God's own heart, the model king. And it just shows any of us, if we don't remain humble, can do any number of stupid things that tarnish our legacy. And so let's finish well by faith in God. And David didn't want to be a model of how God's grace extends even in times when we've blown it the most. But guess what? God's grace extends even in times when we've blown it the most. When we humble ourselves. Look what he said. Have mercy on me, O God, according to what? Your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. On what basis does David ask God to forgive his sins? On the fact that he'll try to do better? No. On the basis of his steadfast love, his kassed. Think about 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's established we're not faithful, we're not just. He forgives us based on keeping his promise to himself to be that kind of God that would respond to repentance with honest and real forgiveness. What other time does God's steadfast love matters to you? It matters when those you love have sinned against you. When you, uh, when you love those who have sinned against you with a God-like love. Hosea 2, 19 and 20, and our system's down, so we're not getting these up here, I don't think, right now. So that's why you're not seeing things projected right now, but we're getting toward the end. In Hosea 2, 19 and 20, remember the book of Hosea? God had Hosea marry Gomer. She was an unfaithful wife. Hosea was called to be faithful to her. And God says, that's how I love my people with steadfast love. Hosea 2, 19 and 20, I will betroth you to me forever, God says. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Well, it's one thing for God to say that's what he's like, but he also calls us to reflect that and be like that with others. And so just as two weeks ago I wanted you to go out and be merciful and gracious to others because God's been merciful and gracious to you. And just like last week I said go out and be slow to anger with others because God has been so patient and forbearing with you. Now we're called to exhibit this steadfast, unconditional love of God to others. 
In Hosea 6, 6, God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament is Micah 6, 8. Many of you know it. Do you know that's the word kased also? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, do the right thing, do the ethical thing in yourself. When you're out there, do the biblical thing. And then to love kindness or mercy, your translation says. That's the word kased there. To love steadfast love. To faithfully love others even when they're not so faithful to you. That's why Jesus could model and say, what do you do with those who curse you? You bless them. What do you do with those who persecute you? You pray for them. What do you do good that are spiteful towards you? You do good to those who are spiteful toward you. Do justly, love kesed, and walk humbly with your God. Let me ask you, how are you doing at showing God's kindness to others? Are you presuming, hey, God's kind to me, but man, I don't know about these other sorry rascals out here. Are you saying, because I've received, I will give out to others. I'll be that kind of person. I'll be the presence of Christ on this earth. What other time do you need God's steadfast love? You need it when you're reaching out to those who don't yet know God. We've looked at Jonah 4.2 every week because it's amazing how the same things in Exodus 34... The prophet Jonah knew that God had said that about himself. And even though he said it about Israel, Jonah knew it was for anybody that would get in on it. And so Jonah was mad that when he preached repentance and change of mind and heart to the Ninevites, those wicked Ninevites, he was mad when they asked God to forgive him because he knew God would forgive him. That would have been the best missionary letter in history to write. I preached in Nineveh and 120,000 were saved. But Jonah and his friends didn't love those wicked Ninevites. He was embarrassed that that had happened and that he had been the instrument of it. But in Jonah 4.2, he says, Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. You're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So this word also matters when you're reaching out to those who don't yet know God. There's room at the tabernacle for any sinner that trusts Christ. Amen? No matter what their background is, no matter where they come from, no matter what they've done. God is in the business of saving sorry rascals like Danny Campbell and changing their destiny and their sister's destiny and others around the world. That's why we rejoice when we hear somebody like Billy Graham say, come, come to Jesus. Be forgiven of your sin. Start a new life with God. Let him restore the years the locusts have eaten, as the great prophet Joel said. I've seen that so many times. I've seen it in younger ones. I've seen it in older ones. I've seen it in men and women with a checkered past, get saved, get forgiven, have a new purity from God, and go on to be exemplary Christian believers. We got new names and faces this time around, but gospel changes are still going down. And that brings us to Don Richards' dilemma in the Sawi tribe. War had broken out for this Judas-loving people, and he told the chief he would need to leave if peace didn't come. Well, here's the rest of the story. The chief had come to love Don Richards and didn't want him to leave. And so that man did something that changed everything. He gave his own child what the tribes called a peace child to the enemy tribe to raise. 
God had allowed a custom to come into this people group that Don Richardson was able to see and extend the gospel using that custom. And here was the custom. As long as, uh, uh, according to their customs, as long as this peace child given by one tribe at war with another tribe, given by a leader, their own child that had been born to the other tribe to raise, as long as that child was alive, there would be peace among the warring tribes. And that's exactly what happened. Now, sometimes you've joked that you want to give your child away, but you wouldn't really do it. <laughs> and you wouldn't give it to your enemy, would you? Oh my gosh, I don't like them. Here, I want peace to be between us, though, so come and t take my child and raise it. Oh, there'll be peace as long as that child's alive. And this is in a context where cannibalism took place. We don't want peace, we ate your child. But they accepted the peace child and there was peace. But more than that happened, Don Richardson realized that was the way to present the gospel to this people. <laughs> he said, you like Judas in the story, but let me tell you who Jesus is. Jesus is God's peace child. God said, I don't want to have to judge you, I'd rather save you. So I'm giving you my child to raise and live with you there on earth. What'd we do with him? Spat on him? crown of thorns, the scourgings, <sighs> patronized him when he came and healed uh, and, and said, well, if, if God was here, he wouldn't spend time with those people. When he failed to meet the Pharisees and others' expectations, they rejected him. But the Bible says really all of us did because we'd all rather have our own way until that moment of awakening comes when we realize life's better with God. He's our creator. He loves us. And so the Bible says that Christ was rejected when he came to earth, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become a child of God. What a God. What a God. The ultimate peace child story. Over the years, most of the tribe became Christians and missionaries to their neighboring tribes. And the peace child, he became the first Sawi to graduate from higher education and is now a school principal. <laughs> Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Won't you bow your heads? Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.